This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. There's no such thing as an ideal Muslim family. As a matter of fact, there's no such thing as an ideal family. You can even take out the word Muslim. And also, there's no such thing as a normal family. So if you're, some of you are wondering, why can't we have a normal family? Right? Uh, let's accept the fact that there's no such thing. Every one of us has some kind of adventure in our family. Some kind of problem. Some kind of crazy situation. And we all think that it's, oh my family, oh man, we're so weird. We have these weird situations in our family. You're not weird. You're actually pretty normal, because there's a whole bunch of other people that have the same exact situation as you, or even worse, and are dealing with it. Our deen does not want us to be an ideal family, it wants us to deal with our family in an ideal way. It teaches us how to manage a situation. This dunya is a, a world of trials, and those trials are going to be personal, those trials are going to be financial, those trials are also going to have to do a lot with our families. We're going to have family trials. And that's a part of life. You, can't, you have to accept that. You have to accept that there's going to be trouble in family. And you just and the theme is beautiful because it accepts that reality and it teaches us how to deal with it. Somebody comes to me, I get a lot of emails uh, in subjects that I'm not qualified for. So I get, you know, people listen to my talks online and watch a YouTube video or something and then they, they share their personal life story by email with me. A lot. And most of it has to do with some kind of family situation. Most of it. Somebody's having a real problem with their wife. Somebody's having a real problem with their husband. Somebody seriously hates their brother or their sister. They can't stand them. How, how do I deal with this hate? Somebody says, my parents just don't listen to me. They don't, they don't care about me. I can't talk to them about anything. They're always angry. Somebody says, my uncle is so arrogant. I don't know what to do about that. He's just got such an ego problem. I, just, I don't know how to deal with it. How am I supposed to keep family relations with someone who's so arrogant and so, you know, so condescending all the time. He talks down to me all the time. There are people that, you know, talk about how uh, they've, they've lost a family member or there's a family member that's sick. And so, you know, when a family member is sick, the entire family has to compensate for that and deal with that situation. It's not easy sometimes. Especially people that are in terminally ill kinds of situations. And you have to, you know, you're taking care of the father. Everybody's taking turns taking care of the father or the mother. Or things that some of you parents have a child who's got a very, you know, difficult disorder or disease. And you have to turn your whole life upside down to deal with that child's situation. Sometimes, you know, a, a husband or a wife become very, very sick. And it can really put a lot of pressure on the rest of the family. Then, of course, I haven't even talked about the big one, in-laws. So, I mean, all of us have situations. All of us do. There's none of us that don't. None of us, none of us can safely say that I have a life in which no family, no member of my family, close or distant, causes me zero stress. I get no stress from family. That is just isn't true. And now, how do I know that our deen teaches us to deal with this kind of scenario? I told you somebody emails me and says I'm having trouble with my wife. I don't know if I can trust her. We have we, we don't communicate very clearly. I thought she was someone, but she's someone else. I don't really know. Sometimes I don't feel like I don't know who she is. I'm like, hey, that sounds familiar. Lut And somebody else comes and tells me, I, you know, my kids, they give me such grief. I've done everything I can to raise them, but they give me such a hard time. I'm like, hey, Lut alayhi salam. Sounds familiar. 
Somebody else comes and tells me, you know, my husband, he's, he's you know, abusive, he's scary, I'm afraid to talk to him, I don't know what to do, I'm stuck in this situation. I'm like, oh, I see Allah, 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 okay. And he, and my uncle's a crazy guy. He's really arrogant. He gives me such a hard time. Oh, Abu Lahab, oh, okay. okay. I mean, you give me a situation, you give me a family situation, and chances are, you know, somebody says, I hate my siblings. Like, I can't stand them. They're older than me. They always beat me up. I was like, oh, Benjamin. His brother, you know, oppressed him. They even blame him when, they, when he gets arrested, you know, in Egypt. SubhanAllah. Every one of these situations, there's something in the Quran. There's something in the Sunnah of the Prophet Why are these situations there? Because even the best of people, the best of people had family situations. The best of them. And it's not their fault. I would argue probably as far as parents are concerned, for example, that Ya'qub is, in my estimation, probably the, the best parent or the example of parenting mentioned in the Qur'an. When Allah talks about parenting, He brings up Ya'qub a lot. Okay? And Ya'qub as you know, his other name is Israel. And he has how many sons? Anyone know? His 12 sons. Ten of whom give him hard time for most of his life. A very hard time. Ten of, and you cannot argue that Yaqub being a prophet that he is السلام, that he was not a good parent. He was an awesome parent. He did his job as a parent, but kids didn't turn out the way he expected. That's just reality. You can do your part, but you can only do so much. Then people, you know, a lot of times people have a certain kind of email. I, I, or a certain kind of question. And that's really what I want to talk to you guys about, is how do we think about these problems? My, my discussion with you today is really just that, it's a discussion. It's not a halaqa of ilm. I'm not going to teach you, some, you know, something about Islamic knowledge that you didn't already know. But I want to have a conversation with you, and actually I want to dedicate most of our time together with you asking the questions, and you, you know, bringing up concerns, things like that, inshaAllah. But you know, people ask, um, how, do you, how do you talk to someone in your family who's got this, this, and this? How do you talk to your parents who don't listen to you? Or how do you, you know, how do you change them? Right, so most people that have a problem, they think the solution is if somehow we can change the person who's giving us a hard time, we can change the person who's the cause of the problem, how do we change them? You know, that is the problem, isn't it? Like, Rasulullah cannot change his uncle. He can't change him. He cannot change. Nuh can't change his wife. He, he can't. She is who she is. And the only one who can change the hearts is Allah. Ya Right? The one who can change the hearts. We can't change people's hearts. We cannot alter them. So we have to understand, first and foremost, that if you are expecting other people to change, and until other people change, your situation will not get any better then you're looking at the problem the wrong way. Because if you keep waiting for other people to change, that may never happen. That might never happen. The only thing you can do and I can do is deal with the situation in a healthy way. And I'm not just saying, I'm not saying sabr is the only answer. There may be other things you can do. There may be other remedies to the problem. There may be other ways of tackling and dealing with the situation. But one thing's for sure. The primary responsibility we have, like if you're unhappy with your wife, for example, and inshallah ta'ala you're not, 
But if you're unhappy with your wife, every other conversation runs into a fight. They just end up just arguing with her. Right? And if she's unhappy with you, you're unhappy with her. And you feel like every time you bring up a concern, she just doesn't care. And you, you tell her something's important and she says, yeah, yeah, whatever, and she doesn't care. And that's what you feel like. And she feels like you never listen to her. And there's this kind of problem. And then you come to the sheikh and say, sheikh, my wife, uh, I don't know. She's got these issues, what should I do? And the sheikh, you know, it, it, maybe you didn't even ask the sheikh, maybe you asked Google. What should I do? And you find out like a hadith about the wife. Ayat about the wife. And you pull out all the rights of the husband. All the hadith and you put them on the fridge. <laughs> you know, فَصَّالِحَاتُ <laughs> قَانِتَاتٌ Righteous women are the ones that are subservient and obedient and they're willing to obey and they're, you know, you put it on the fridge for her. Maybe if she reads Qur'an and realizes what she's supposed to be like, you make a big poster on الرِّجَالُ قَوَّابُونَ عَلَى You know, men are maintainers and, you know, authorities over women. You make a gigantic poster and you put it in the bedroom. You know, because he walks in, she sees الرِّجَالُ قَوَّابُونَ عَلَى النِّسَاءِ Chances are that's not going to work very well. Chances are, even if you quote the Dalil on her face, you're like, hey, you ain't no Sahabi yourself, you know. <laughs> Right? It's not going to happen. These are human situations. And the other thing we have to note is the best generation, the Sahaba they were no exception either. They had trouble too. They had trouble in their families. And it wasn't just trouble between Muslim Sahaba and non-Muslim like family members. That's obvious. There's going to be some friction there. But even among Muslims. I mean the Quran even talks about a divorce happening between you know, uh, uh, Zayd it happened, didn't it? And they're both Sahaba. They're both good people. They're not bad people. Sometimes family can't get along. It happens. These are real life situations. So the first major point I want to make before all of you is difficult situations in dealing with family is a reality of life. It is going to happen. It happens already. The second point is that I don't, you, we shouldn't expect to change other people. The only thing we can do is perhaps take a good look at ourselves and say, what part of this is my fault? What part of this am I doing wrong? Is there something I could be doing differently? And maybe you're not wrong. It's true. By the way, human tendency is to believe that you have done nothing wrong. That's a human tendency. So whenever there's a problem, the hardest thing to accept is that I am part of the problem. No, 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 I do everything. No, no, I haven't done any issues. Oh, it's her, man. She's evil. And the wife says the same thing, I do everything I can. He just doesn't have any patience. He just doesn't listen. He just this or that. Like, you're convinced that you cannot be wrong. And the other is absolutely wrong. They're absolutely wrong. And this mentality also contributes further to the problem. If you're not willing to accept that there's something wrong with you, even if it's 1%, maybe 99% their fault, 1% your fault. But if you can't even admit to that 1%, you can't admit to that, and, you can't, and you're not willing to change yourself in any way, then you are setting yourself up for a lifetime of misery. The solution to our family problems is not to leave our families, is not to cut the relations, is not to just fire, maybe, maybe if I had a different family, things would have been better. Maybe if they weren't, you know, maybe if I got married to somebody else, things wouldn't be like this. So Shaitan gives you that thought. He gives you that thought. Maybe, I don't know, this family is kind of messed up. This one didn't turn out that well. Let me try a different one. It's, it's not food at a restaurant. 
Besides, I don't like this one, let me try another one. Actually, chances are if you're bad at running one family, I'm talking to the men now, if you're bad at running one family, chances are you're going to be worse at running the next one. <laughs> you're going to be worse. You know? And then some, some guys start thinking, some men, especially in married situations, they start thinking, oh, well, I can't really deal with this wife, she gives me a hard time, let me marry another one. You know, Islam does give me the option, so this one's giving me a hard time, there's always another. You know, Masna wa thulatha wa rubah. The only ayah I know in the Qur'an, <laughs> might as well. It's not haram, after all. Allah didn't give that option. And guess what? You, you uh, couldn't handle one, and you're, you're going to really do great with two. It's going to be awesome. Uh, no, it's not. No, it's not. You just ended up ruining two lives. That's what you ended up doing. These things you have to really, really, really think about. And I say the first thing we have to get out of our heads is we have to stop wishing our, our family was somebody else. Or that cutting relations are no longer talking. I just even, I just even don't even talk to my wife anymore because I don't want to fight. I don't even talk to my dad anymore because I don't want to fight. I don't even talk to my brother anymore, I don't want to fight. You just kind of, even if you don't cut relations like you're not my brother anymore, you just practically don't talk to them anymore. Because you know every time you talk it gets into a fight. Right? So you just practically distance yourself from your family. And this is exactly the problem that Rasulullah warned about, and the, one of the most important advice, pieces of advice in Islam, is Silatul Rahim, keeping the family ties tied. This is one of the qualifications for entering Jannah. Why is it? It seems so easy, right? Keeping family ties. It's like, why would that get you into Jannah? Shouldn't it be like some battle in the, some jihad on the battlefield, or some, you know, some really awesome, deep, like good deed, like Qiyamul Layl for 40 days, 40, 40 years or something? Why keeping the family ties together? If you know what your family is like, you know this isn't easy. If you know what your family is like, especially the cousin you hate, the brother you can't stand, the uncle who's like super obnoxious, you know, the son or daughter who just looking at them makes you angry. There are some mothers in the audience, they're good to all of their kids, but there's one daughter, she can't stand her. She looks at her, she gets angry. She just gets upset. She sees her face, why are you here? Like she'll be smiling at everything else, and then she'll see that in like a dark cloud shows over, over her face. Just can't stand it, there's something in her head. I don't know what it is, she makes me so angry. You know? And she's stuck in that state. There are some people that are having that problem. And it's a really straining relationship. That's what we learn about Sayyidatul Who are we treating poorly and why? And how do we start fresh? How do we, do, how do we build a real family? Real family relations, despite all of our problems. There are some of you, because we're living in America, there's another interesting reality. There's a reality where people, you know, the family's trying to hold on to Islam. And they're trying to, you know, make sure the children learn the prayer. And they learn to observe the, you know, the, the restrictions of the haram. And they commit themselves to the halal. But one of the boys is becoming rebellious. One of the girls is becoming rebellious. And they're stopped, they stop praying. And you find weird stuff on their iPhone. And they, you know, they're just headphones in the ear all the time. The father's going to Qiyam al-Layl every night. He's at every salat at the masjid. And the kid at home is a completely different character. The girl goes out and she doesn't, you don't even know where she goes. And then she comes back at 10, 11 o'clock at night. And there's this friction in the house. Because it's like these kids have practically left Islam. They've practically left but the, the, you know, the, the parents, because they come from a traditional Muslim family where they were raised with certain values, 
It is so traumatic, it's so difficult to deal with that reality that my children are just, they don't care about Islam anymore. You just decide you don't want to deal with it. The elders decide they don't want to deal with it. I'll just spend most of my time in the masjid. I'll just spend my time making dua, making dhikr, making salawat. That's all I can do. I'm not going to deal with my family. These kids, let them just, let them just do what they do. And every time, if you do talk to them, you yell and scream, you yell and scream, the kids go, I don't have to take this, I'm out. They slam the door and they walk out. They don't have to take it anymore, you know? And so you don't deal with it, and they, they say they can't talk to you, and eventually you end up losing those children. They end up running away from home, they end up, you know, in all kinds of illicit relationships. They move out of the house, you lose touch with them, you lose family this way. There's so many families in the, in the country that I've personally met where one or two or three children just left the family. They just left. They left. They're for all practical purposes, they're not even Muslim anymore. You know, moved in with a boyfriend, moved in with a girlfriend, got a job somewhere else and then never called, never talked, nothing. Just left entirely. In other words, we pushed our children so hard, some of our kids, on the religion, we pushed them so hard that they broke. Literally, they couldn't, have, they couldn't handle it. We didn't realize, I know, mashallah, sometimes our, our neighborhoods in the United States, and some of that is here in Minneapolis, right? There are some neighborhoods that are like little Somalia. There are some neighborhoods that are like little Bangladesh. Some neighborhoods that are like little Pakistan, like, or little India, like, you know, Hyderabad is also called Chicago nowadays. It was the same. Some place, some neighborhoods, you know? There are places in New York like that. There are places in Minneapolis like that. There are, there are places with their pockets and you, you know, everybody feels like, oh, this is not really America. It was like, you know, there's a masjid right there. All the Muslims live in the same apartment complex. There's a halal, eight, 80, 85 halal restaurants down the street. This is a Muslim country right here. But you know what? As, mu as much as you want to pretend this isn't America, the public high school is still the public high school. The movie theater is still the movie theater. The drugs on the street are still the drugs on the street. The gangs are still the gangs. You can pretend these few blocks are, you know, mini khilafah for you, but it's not. It's not. Let's just pretend. That's not dealing with reality. And there are people, especially elders in our community, and I don't blame them. I don't blame them. There's a language barrier, there's a culture barrier. They can actually live 30, 40 years of their life in America and not feel for a minute that they're in America. Because their, their life is go home, go to the halal grocery store, hang out with your friends that speak the same language as you, then go to the masjid, then go home, masjid, grocery store, home, masjid, halal restaurant, and go to each other's apartments. And you didn't, you never, 40 years you didn't have to learn English. You didn't have to. Because everybody around you created this mini little village, and you lived in that. But your kids don't live in that. Your kids don't live in that. Your kids live in America. The duxi is not going to work for them sometimes. They're going to start hating it, some of them. You're going to have to make some changes. Because what worked back home may not work over here. You can't just prop a culture, pick it up from one place in the world, and drop it in another place in the world, and expect that it's going to work exactly the same way. It doesn't. It doesn't work. Some of it does. Sure. I'm not saying we drop all of our values. Absolutely not. And actually, like specifically, I know there's a majority, mashallah, Somali community in the audience, I want to acknowledge some things. Somali community in particular, so, mashallah, one of, the, one of the things I love about this community is their relationship with the Qur'an. 
I don't know any other community that has that kind of relationship with the Qur'an, that kind of emphasis on the Qur'an, that kind of like love for memorizing the Qur'an and reciting the Qur'an. Whether I go to a community in Columbus, Ohio, or I go to a community over here, you know, in Minnesota, or I see our community, the Somali community in Dallas, all over the country there's pockets of you know, Somali communities, and you go and you go to those masajid, but Fajr, Lahore, Asr, Maghrib, Isha, the masjid is buzzing with Qur'an. It's awesome. It's awesome. But the problem is I don't see the young people. I see the really young kids. I see the really young kids. I see the really old people. I see the women. I don't see the teenagers. I don't see the 13-year-olds. I don't see the 15-year-olds. I see one or two of them. They're good kids. Where's the majority of them? Where's the majority of them? You'll find them on the basketball court. You'll find them somewhere a little farther away from the masjid. Maybe even there's a program going on in the masjid, the guys show up, they'll show up if there's a ball court at the masjid. Play ball outside, you know? But you know what? I'm not complaining. I'm saying those kids are still good kids. We just have to acknowledge the fact that number one, they're living in America. They're living in America. So how, how we're going to give them Islam is going to have to be different. You know? It's the same Islam, but the way we, the, the way we administer it is going to have to consider you know, the other realities in our community, you know? So, I was talking to you about family, you know, the ideal Muslim family situation. The biggest thing, the biggest principle in having a healthy family, I'm not going to say ideal family because I told you there's no such thing. Even the prophets didn't have ideal families. Even they had problems in their families. The healthy, the, the, the first principle in my opinion, of a healthy family, is you never give up on family. You never, I don't care if your kid's doing drugs. I don't care if your, you know, your, your father's all kinds of messed up. You don't give up on your family. You stay in touch. If they're abusive, it's a different story. If they're physically abusive, if they're emotionally abusive, even though you don't give up on them, that doesn't mean you take the abuse either. Second principle is you don't accept abuse. You don't continue along with abuse. It's not healthy. You're not helping yourself. You can't say, oh, I'm just having sabr. No, 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 no. That's not sabr. That's not sabr. You're just damaging yourself. And human beings can only take so much. We're a limited container. You take so much, enough abuse is given to you and you will break, you'll snap. Crazy things will happen. You have to have, you have to draw the line. You will accept, you will take care of your parents, for example. You will do everything you can for them. But when, they, when it comes, you know, when they do something that's outright wrong, you will have to stand up and say, you know, this isn't right. And you have to, the elders in our community have to get involved in that. A lot of times, subhanAllah, our traditional elders in our communities, they, they're so knowledgeable, and they're so well qualified as scholars. But at the same time, they are not aware of a lot of the situations of our families. They're not just fully aware of them. So they never bring it up in their khutbahs, and their gurus, and their halaqat. They don't bring it up because they're not made aware. They're not made aware. And they're good people. The community's job is to make the leadership aware of what's happening. Because I can almost guarantee you the imams of our community, the ulama of our community, they're concerned people. They want good for the people. They want Islam for the people. So when they hear about the problems, it concerns them, and they will try to educate the community more and more, raise awareness more and more about the kinds of problems that are happening. Abuse is unacceptable. Not, not abuse from parents to children, not abuse from children to parents. It's unacceptable. 
The second thing is, uh, so three things I mentioned so far. One, you don't give up on family. Two, you have to draw the line somewhere. You have to draw the line. You can't just, anything goes. It's family, they can do whatever they want. No, Are they did not give, give open license. It's not like that. It's not like that. We have to obey our parents. We have to obey our elders. Yes, we do. But we cannot allow that obedience to turn into abuse. That can't be. That's not right. That isn't right. So if they're violating your rights or they're, they're hurting you, then you have to have that conversation. And it's not haram for you to have that conversation. It's not wrong for you to have that conversation. On the other side also, you children have to understand, the, 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 the children here, our parents have to understand that our deen, and one of the biggest priorities in our deen is respect and obedience to parents. One of the biggest priorities in our deen. Even if they're abusive. Even if they're being really bad to you. Even then. You, have, you cannot abandon the respect and love and consideration to your parents. It's a very hard line to think to balance. <laughs> it seems like opposites. But you don't, I don't love, sorry. I don't love and respect my parents only because they're my parents. I love and respect my parents because I'm Allah's slave. And Allah made that a priority for me. So I'm not even doing it for my parents. I'm doing it for Allah. And me not caring about my parents is actually me not caring about what Allah said. I will not have to answer to my parents for that. I will have to answer Allah for that. I, I, have, to have, I have to be very clear that my relationship with my parents is not a reaction. If they're good to me, I'll be good to them. If they're not good to me, I'm, you know, what do you do for me? What did my dad ever do for me? Why should I be nice to him? No, it's not a reactionary relationship. This relationship we have with our parents, especially with our parents, is a relationship that's based entirely on Allah's commandment. It's, it's unconditional. You have to have ihsan with your, both your parents unconditionally. It's not dependent on whether they're good parents or not. You have to do the best you can with them. You have to do the best you possibly can with them. Sometimes our, our elders, they do things that harm themselves. Our elders, they do things that harm themselves. Sometimes they get stressed, they cry, they yell, they scream. And you think they're doing that to you. But you know what? They're just as miserable. They're making themselves miserable. And sometimes they don't know how to get out of that. You have to help them get out of that. You have to, you, you cannot yell back. You have to just calm your mother down and take her for a walk and get her a flower and just work on her. And it won't happen overnight. It'll take some time. It'll take some time to get the anger problem of your dad resolved. It'll take some time. But we have to work on our parents because sometimes they make their own selves miserable. They really do. In many, many cultures in the Muslim community. Because they don't know how to deal with this changing, completely different family. They weren't the kind of kids you are. They'll keep telling you, my, I never did this to my parents. They'll tell you, I never talked back like that to my mother. Yeah, but you didn't live on this continent either. <laughs> you know? That was a different time. That was a different, the, the culture, the values, society, it was completely different. But they don't know how, they don't necessarily understand that. And they don't necessarily, I don't expect them to understand that. So it's going to be very traumatic for them to deal with people like you guys. You guys are pretty traumatic to deal with. You have to understand the kids in this audience. They're not easy to deal with. They're not easy to deal with by your Sunday school teacher, your, te your, your teachers, some of your friends. Forget your parents. Yeah, they're, they're not easy to deal with. 
you're, you're, you have a lot less patience, you talk back a lot more, you want to do your own thing all the time, you don't, you don't ever listen, and if you do, it's not because they said it once, they have to say it at least a hundred times before you listen. And even then you complain. You're not easy to deal with. So if they're upset, they have a reason too. Everybody needs to do an assessment about what they're doing wrong in their relationships. And what's going wrong in our relationships? So look, you know, this idea of how can I be a better son? How can I be a better mother? How can I be a better father? How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better wife? You have to ask that question without asking the other one. Okay, okay, so the sister listening to this dubs, she goes home, she goes, okay, I'm ready to be a better wife, but what are you going to do? <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't say but, what are you going to do? Don't add that part. You're going to be a better wife. Husband goes and says, okay, okay, I'm ready to be a better husband, but you're going to change too, right? Don't do that. You still haven't understood. You cannot expect other people to change. The only one you can change is yourself. You, and why? What's our motivation as Muslims? Our motivation as Muslims is we can go before Allah and say, Ya Allah, I did, I did my part. I did my part. I did what I could as a good husband. I was patient. I didn't yell. I didn't complain. She would sometimes, that's out of protest. She would say the meanest things to me. She would say horrible things about my mother. And I would just say, I wouldn't listen. And I didn't yell back at her. And I didn't tell her how much I hate her, her mother. I didn't say anything. I was quiet. You know. Sometimes she didn't, she, uh, uh, you know, I came home and she didn't even say salam to me. It hurt my feelings, but I didn't say anything. Sometimes I came home and she was already sleeping. And I didn't have dinner yet. And then I tried to wake her up and she shooed me away. And I got really upset, but I stayed quiet. I was patient, and I wasn't upset the next day either. You know, I did my part, Ya Allah. I did. I'm not complaining. And you don't wish bad about your, well, on your husband and wife. This is the last thing I'll share with you guys, then I'll take your question. You don't wish bad upon your husband or your wife or your father or your mother or your sister or your brother. You don't wish bad upon them. You don't say things like, Allah will ask you about this. <laughs> you don't say that. You don't say that. You know, Rasulullah told us, the, guy who, the person who gets asked even one question on judgment day is destroyed. You're that angry at your wife? You're that angry at your husband that you wish that Allah interrogates them on judgment day? Do you know how serious that is? Let me give you some idea of what you're wishing for. You have just had a fight with your wife. If the police showed up at your door, and they put handcuffs on your wife. You'd be okay with that? Like, that's what you deserve. When you were sleeping when I came for dinner, you didn't wake up, you shoot me off? This is why this is happening to you. That's what you deserve. Would you do that? No. You would forget the fight. Like, don't touch my wife, man. What are you doing? The fight would disappear, wouldn't it? It would disappear. You just had the, you know, there's some families, you know, you live in the apartment next door to your brother. So you and your wife and your kids live in this apartment. Your brother and his wife and his kids live in the next apartment. And of course, it's going to be drama. The wives don't get along, the kids, your kids ate our food, and whatever. They came and left a mess, or they broke our PlayStation controller, or something. And there's a fight between the two brothers. The whole family is like, ah, it's crazy. It just went crazy. And of course the women had nothing to do with the fighting. Nothing at all. Absolutely. Okay. 
Now they're having this terrible fight, but there's a fire in the apartment building. There's a fire in the apartment building. It's two in the morning. You wake up, you get your wife and your kids, you get out. But before you get out, you look at his door and you say, it broke our PlayStation controller. <laughs> Would you do that? Would you knock on his door? Would you wake him up? Even if you had a fight, would you wake him up still? Yeah. Because when there's a state of emergency, you forget about all the fighting. You forget about the... Because all those things become little, pathetic, meaningless. You will even forget about the fight, because it's a big emergency right now. You understand that? Judgment Day is the biggest emergency humanity will ever see. There's no bigger emergency than Judgment Day. You don't wish upon your husband, or your wife, or your children. Allah will ask you on Yom Qiyamah. You don't do that. You don't do that. That means you don't love them at all. That means you wish the worst situation falls upon them. That just means you don't care about them at all. You don't even wish that on non-Muslims. You don't even wish that on the average non-Muslim walking down the street, that they should burn in hell. That's not the attitude of a Muslim. How can you wish that on your own family? So don't make light of the things you say. Be careful about the things you say and the things you think. Parents, I'll give you a different way of thinking about your children that give you a hard time. Don't raise your hands, I know. Your children give you a hard time, and you're like, you know, and you, and you keep yelling at them, and you know, Allah will ask you, and don't you know how you have to be, and etc. And you know what? You have to be intelligent parents. If your children are rebellious, and you know when you do certain things, they start yelling at you. They start yelling, they start yelling at you. You're in shock, you're like, how could you yell at me? I'm your mother, I'm your father, you can't yell at me. And then he says, yeah, I can, look at me, I'll do it again. I'll show you how I can yell at you. <laughs> and do it again. And you're in shock, because how could these kids yell at me? How could they not know what Allah says? Don't even say, oh. That's oof. That's tafsir of oof. Don't say that to them. This is another oof. That's an oath. Don't even say that much to them. And you're yelling back at them? You know what? Parents, I'm not talking to the kids. You're in trouble, kids are in trouble as it is. I'm talking to the parents. Don't put your children in that situation where they will disobey you. If you know that they're disobedient already, don't further their disobedience. Don't create the situation where the, you know the argument is going to happen. Because if you create that situation where the argument is going to happen, you are digging their hole in hellfire. Because there's few crimes in Islam that are bigger than yelling back at your parents. And you created the situation, you parents created the situation where your parents, your kids were yelling back at you, and you were digging their hole in hellfire. If you hate your kids that much, then do that. Otherwise, try to find a softer approach with your kids. Especially your teenage kids. I don't think any of you parents are going to find your children having murdered one of your other children. I don't think you're going to find that situation. But you know what? Yaqub his teenage boys come home and they've got a shirt full of blood of one of their own brothers. And the father knows this is all a load of garbage. They made this story up. So they must have killed him or something. What is he going to do? How is he going to react? 
If he yells at them, they're crazy, they're a bunch of psychos too. If he yells at them, what are they going to do? What do you think chances are they'll do? Yell back. And if you yell back at a parent who's also a prophet, you're done. You're finished. He hears that, he sees that the child is, his most beloved child is missing. He's got a shirt full of blood in front of him. Now let's be, let me pause the movie for a second here. And let me give you a different scenario. How many guys here, younger guys, drive a car? Show of hands, drive a car. Younger guys, okay. Drive your parents' car. Or family, same car. Shared sometimes. So you, you borrow your dad's car, huh? And you're like, oh, I saw it on YouTube, I saw they could do donuts in the parking lot. So you try to do a donut with your dad's car in the parking lot. Except your donut looks more like a pretzel. <laughs> and you end up ramming the rear view mirror into a tree. And the rear view mirror falls off the car. And you're trying to put it back, and you got super glue, and nothing's working. So you take the rear view mirror and you walk into your dad's living room and you hand him the rear view mirror. What happens next? Silence? Here's what your dad says. I'm just going to be patient. Only Allah can help. Right? That's what your dad says, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. They don't even find your body. <laughs> Yusuf salam's father is presented not with a rear view mirror. What is he presented with? A shirt. A shirt. With blood. A missing child. What are you expecting to hear? What do you expect to see? At least slap him. At least, like, punch him all in the face. At least yell at them. At least yell at them. Come on, just yell at them. You gotta do something. What does he say? It's one of the strangest places in the Quran from a psychology point of view. It's very hard to understand. Fasalun jameel. Fasalun jameel. Why? Because he knows, if he yells at them, they will become even worse. And he doesn't want his children in hellfire. So he can only do patience right now. Because he sees not just what is happening in front of him, a parent thinks about the future. A parent doesn't just see what's happening now, he thinks about the future. If they become even more rebellious now, then the door to Tawbah is closed for them. That's it, they're done. SubhanAllah, that's the kind of patience and future thinking parents have to develop. Sometimes your parents get lost so much in what your children are doing day to day to day, you have to think about the future. You have to think about the tarbiyah of your children and how you're going to get them to get closer to you, not further away from you. Every time you yell, every time you yell, every time you scream, they get further and further and further away from you. It's harder and harder and harder to connect with your kids anymore. <clears throat> and you're doing that. And you have to learn to stop yourself and not do it anymore. And this, these are just a few like, random things I wanted to share with you about just family and how we have to really think about one of our biggest priorities in our communities is keeping our family together. Community means nothing un until the family is involved in the community and family is nothing until family stays together. And it takes a lot of work to keep family together. 
So these are the few thoughts I wanted to share with all of you guys. Inshallah, if you have any questions, that's okay. 50 minutes, we can take extra 50 minutes for questions. Of, uh, you know, if you guys have any questions or things you want to talk about, inshallah, we can do that. I personally may not be able to help you with all of your questions, but at least I can point you to certain services and resources that might be available, inshallah. You have a question? Um, so when you give the example of Prophet Yahweh, and in his wisdom, he in the situation where his kids are at a point where
She's really upset that her other two siblings are here. You have to understand, Allah puts something inside the human being called dignity. Even for children, there's dignity. And when that dignity is put down, then they start developing, like it's very painful. It's more painful than physical pain. To be humiliated is more painful than physical pain. So you do everything you can to avoid humiliation. And that's actually something all human beings do. We try to avoid humiliation. The, the first counter to that is that parents have to understand, especially in a society where we are dominated by you know, kufr and rebellion and shamelessness and all these things that we don't, that don't jive with Islam. We have to understand that our parenting cannot be a relationship of authority. Not in this society. Authority is always going to be there, but it has to take a minority role. And the majority role is you can talk to me about anything. It doesn't matter what it is, you, you can talk to me. And I will not dismiss anything you're saying. This is actually a Qur'anic remedy. You know, Yusuf told his dad a dream. Right? And there's an ayah dedicated to a child telling his father a dream. And there's a couple of ayat after that dedicated to the child responding to the, 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 the parent responding to the child about the dream. And it's not the mother, it's the father. Now who listens better kids, mother or father? Let me hear it, mother or father? Father, father listens better when you're little? Mother listens. Father you can talk to for half an hour. In second period, we made a mountain today. We drew it. And then I put a bird at the top of it. And he's sitting there going, flipping channels. That's good. And, and I broke my teeth. That's good. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's not listening. Dads, typically, especially for younger kids, they're not good listeners. They just want to tickle you and play with you and then leave me alone. They're not there for conversation. This boy comes to his father and tells him a dream. Now imagine a scenario where you're six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you go to your dad and you tell him a dream. But you know what I saw, Baba? I saw a dinosaur and it was eating its own tail. And then it said, ouch. And your dad's like, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good, very good, mashallah. Okay. Now go do your homework. He's not really listening. Because he thinks the child's dream is absurd. What? And what did the child see in his dream? I saw 11 stars and the sun and the moon and they were all doing sajda to me. Do I put that on? So, but the father listened. The father listened. And it's not, what's really amazing about that is, the, what we're learning about parental psychology in that surah, the first lesson we're learning is you have to carefully listen to your children even if they're talking about something that's not reality. A dream isn't reality. They're just talking about their thoughts, what they saw in a dream, but you still have to pay attention. And you have to pay so much attention that the father listens to it and then there's a couple of ayat of complimenting his child and engaging his child. And the other thing is, who would think which child would think, I just saw a dream. Here's a good idea, I should talk to dad about it. When do your kids come up to you and talk to you about anything? They don't. They don't talk to you about your friend, their friends at school. They don't talk to you about homework. They don't talk to you about, you know, what, they, what one, of their, one of their friends had on their mobile device that they tried to show them. They don't talk to you. They're afraid to talk to you. But you've created that relationship. 
Yaqub has created a relationship where his son is so comfortable talking to him about anything, even if it's a dream. The first person he thinks about talking to is who? His dad. When you have that kind of open relationship, when you have that kind of open relationship, lying is not going to be a problem. But, did his other kids lie to him? They did, didn't they? They lied. So that you know what that means? You can do your part as a parent to be as open and as accessible and as kind and as, as clear as you can in your communications and there are strategies you can employ. But if someone is going to have certain challenges in their personality, you know, at, at the age of children, we can try to address them as best we can. But once kids become teenagers, they're their own personality. You can only do so much. Then it's sabrun jamilun time. Then it's time for sabrun jamilun. You can't really change it. You know? Then you can only ask Allah for help. Now, so the, the, the open communication, you don't have to be afraid if you tell me, yes, it's a bad thing you did, but I, I love you anyway. You know? That, that sort of, it's going to be hard, but it has to be developed. Especially for us as parents, because we come from a culture, when, whenever you make a mistake, what's the first response by the parents? It's the first response. And that's usually even if you do something good. Even if you do something good. Why? It's, an, it's advanced payment for the next mistake. <laughs> you know, we come from that culture. We come from a culture where we're constantly reprimanding and correcting, disciplining our kids. So it's very hard for us to think differently as parents. We have to. We really, really have to. Otherwise, children develop this habit of lying and lying and lying. So the first thing is when they lie, to not humiliate. To not humiliate. The second thing is to pull them aside, maybe take them on a trip, maybe sit them down for ice cream, something, and say, look, I know, I know what happened. And I know that wasn't the truth. But I'm not angry. I just really, I'm really hurt that you don't think that you can trust me. I trust you, Mama. No, you don't. If you, if you trusted me, you would have told me. And I really feel sad that you don't trust me. Did I do something wrong? Is it my fault you don't trust me anymore? You know, I feel really bad. Maybe I'm a bad parent. No, Mama, you're not a bad parent. I'm sad. <laughs> Cognitive. Put yourself in that situation. Make, make the love of your child for you, not the fear of your child for you. The love of your child for you should drive them to the truth. Not the fear. And it'll, it, it'll happen. It takes a little bit of work. You're chipping away at this heart. And eventually you open up. But that's really what you want, especially by the time your children are teenagers. Because by the time your kids are teenagers, man, they, are, they get tough. They get hard to deal with. They get hard-headed. They get stubborn. So when your kids are 11 and 12, this is the most important age of their life with you. Be, make extra time for your 10, 11, 12 year old. Extra time to talk, to sit, to discuss, to hang out. You have to have to. You know, my, my oldest daughter is about to turn 12. I am scared to death. I'm terrified. And what I've decided to do, I'm, first of all, I'm traveling a lot less. This is one of the longest trips I've, I've done this year because I'm staying an extra, like these few hours that I'm talking to you guys. But you know what I do even if I take maybe one trip a month and what I've decided to do is I take one of my girls with me per trip. So I can spend one-on-one -on -one time with each girl. I just talk. Just do dumb things. Just talk. Just spend time. Why? Because you know I have six children and even if I talk to each of them every day, 
they're all fighting for my attention, right? They're all, we're all talking at the same time. We're not having a personal conversation. I'm not getting to know them as a person as much. I need time with them by themselves. That one-on-one time with your children is what will save your life. And if you're not making that time with your children, one-on-one. I know Somali families, you got a lot of kids like we do. <laughs> one-on-one time with each kid. And I know what happens well, after you pass six kids, they're like, hey, uh, what's your name again? Oh, what's your name? <laughs> Kareem, I mean Zainab. Ah, gotcha. Number three. No, wait, wait. Number two, just come here. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and you're sitting, he's like, your dad's like, I'm so proud of you, Zainab. Uh, Dad, I'm Fatima. <laughs> That's what I meant. You know what I meant. <laughs> you know? One on one time with your kids. Really important. Yeah. Then you, the groceries are out. The milk is finished. 
Then while you're doing all of that and the kids are already getting ready for breakfast, one of your sons takes the cereal and tips it over and pours the milk on top of it on the floor. And then your husband wakes up and says, where's my breakfast? And then, you know. And so this is happening every day, every, and it's stress, and it's stress, and it's stress, and it's stress. And then you finally, you're, you're one of your little kids, or your, your, your daughter comes home, or your son comes home from school, third, fourth grade, and they slap the two-year-old. You've been putting up with a lot all day. I mean, they just came from school, but you've already had a 12 to 10 hour day. And when your three third grader slaps the second grader, Kablo! <laughs> it just all boils over and you explode. All the other children are like, <laughs> and the one kid gets it. He just gets it. And then your husband comes home and says, why are you always angry? And you're like, <laughs> You have no idea how hard could it be. And then you say, oh, well, how hard could it be? Why don't you watch the kids for an hour? I'm going somewhere. This husband will almost die. <laughs> Why did you leave me with them? You didn't do anything. Oh my God, do you? I talked to you, you said they'll sleep the whole time. They woke up like two minutes after you left. <laughs> oh my God. So I, you know what? I can respect that you have a very stressful life. I can respect that. But there's even more expected from you. And you know what you have to do? You have to start putting more and more and more responsibilities on your children especially the older kids, you have to start helping, making them help around the house, not by yelling at them. Because you yell, I always tell you to clean your room, but they don't clean their room. I tell you to help out, they don't help out, right? But take one child, and say, come here, I want, to, I want to cook with you. Mom, I wanted to, no, 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 just cook with me, it's okay. But I wanted to watch the show, everybody's watching Arthur, and I want to watch Arthur. Okay, you can watch Arthur later, I'll put it on for you later. Okay, you and I'll watch it together, just, just cook with me. Take a child in, do something with that. And you know what you'll see? The crazy thing. The other child comes, can I do that too? <laughs> Don't you want to watch the cartoon? No, 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 I want to play this. Can I do the song? In the beginning, just get your kids to start doing things with you for fun. And slowly it'll turn into them taking on responsibilities. If you start with, clean the room, take out the garbage, you do this, you do that, they'll never do it. Or even if they do it, they'll be like, oh, I don't want to do it. You know? But you know what that'll do? It'll start taking the pressure off of you a little bit. And also it's really good for kids to start taking house responsibilities. To take care of chores. To clean things up. To give, give jobs to kids and don't pay them for it. Don't pay kids for it. And I'm not just saying be cheap. You should give kids allowance sometimes once in a while. But I'm saying give your kids responsibilities that they should do just because they should do them. Not because they're going to get paid for it or they're going to get something out of it. You don't, don't create capitalists at five years old. Don't do that. Okay, so one child, their responsibility is there's no shoes, shoes in the hallway. That's just their job. There's no shoes in the hallway. So they do a sweep every, every hour they come back. They're not my shoes, I don't have to move them. No, that's not, that's their job. So they, they move everybody's shoes. One kid's job is every evening they have to do all the cups, the other one has to do all the plates. See what I'm saying? There's little tasks, little tasks. And then you compliment kids on the test. That's the payment. You did such a good job today with the shoes. I'm really proud of you. That was very, very good. That makes me proud to say you're, you're an immediate child. I make God that Allah gives you the best 
you, you know, that you have good grades at school, good du'as for your kids, in front of them, you know, about things they care about. You know, I, I pray Allah makes you so awesome that all of the, the whole world is proud of you, that Allah is proud of you on Judgment Day. You know, do you like basketball? You know your child likes basketball or soccer or whatever. I hope Allah makes you the best basketball player in the world. Really? That's really. You know? Really? Those kinds of thoughts. And that, that brings you closer to me. Any other questions you guys? Well, you, I had to kind of want to kind of spread out the... Yeah. Okay. Okay, so the question is, what do we do with our kids? Public school, Islamic school, or homeschooling? Uh, or charter school? Or go back home? Um, yeah, the go back home is probably not going to work. So, uh, I mean, you could try it. At the last, yeah, yeah. Well, I know people that have tried it, and they are depressed. Kids are depressed, they're depressed, because... Just the kids are American now. You can't just put them back in that world. And also, when Muslims, when when people do messed up things over here, at least you can say they're kufar. When people do messed up things over there, they're Muslim. What are you gonna say? Nothing. I met a family from uh, uh, Saudi the other day. They said we are bringing our kids to Texas because the fitna there is too big. I was like, what? I'm like, yeah, you don't know what the kids are up to over there. We took a part. They, they spent three weeks in Dallas in our community, and they're like, yeah, this is a lot better for our kids. We're coming here. Okay. So far, so much for the go back home. Things are so much better, because everybody like, you know, everybody back home, you know, has got like snoodle on their face. The masajid are always full. Everybody's just, the only words that come out of people's mouths are SubhanAllah, and MashaAllah, and InshaAllah, and Alhamdulillah. No. That's not the case. Now, what are the options over here for schooling? Just briefly, uh, there's not one answer for that question. There's not one kind of Islamic school. There are some very successful Islamic schools in America, and there are some not successful Islamic schools at all in America, so you have to do your homework with that, right? Um, the second thing is, uh, there are some public schools that are very, very good. But if you're going to put your child in public school, you have to be aware of what happens at public school. One of the things that are on most kids' mobile devices, what are the most downloaded songs, what are the most downloaded movies, what are the most visited websites for by a teenage category. Google Analytics are there. There are some Muslim counselors that have already done all of this research. You have to know that if, even if your kid doesn't go to those websites, this kid sitting next to them goes to them and shows it to them. So your children will be exposed to things, and you need to, you to know what those things are. So if you don't know who Justin Bieber is, there's a problem. If you don't know, like, yeah, seriously. And if you don't know, you know, what movies are being watched or what, what Grand Theft Auto is, or like, if you don't know these things, then you can't be sending your child to public school because you need to know that stuff. You need to really, really know that stuff. And if you're going to send your child to public school, if that's the only option you have, you can't afford Islamic school and you're not qualified for homeschooling and that's the only option you have, then you better make sure that they get a really strong Islamic personality education. I added what word in Islamic education? Personality. Because it's not about ilm, it's about personality. It doesn't matter how many du'as they've memorized, how many surahs they memorize. 
you know, uh, uh, how much they can recite, etc., etc. It matters what their personality is like. Personality is developed in a program where you have a lot of discussion. And our children, I was just mentioning this to some brothers I had lunch with yesterday. We have to make sure that at about 11, 12 years old, we have a discussion about Islam with our children, as though we are introducing to Islam to them all over again. It's like we're making them Muslim at the age of 11 and 12, cognitively, like they're coming intellectually to Islam. They're not coming to Islam because it's inherited. They're not coming to Islam because they were raised a Muslim. They're not coming to Islam because they don't know anything else. They're coming to Islam because they're convinced of Islam. So we have to have that, build that personality. I believe at the age of 11, 12, of the foundations of our aqidah, why do we believe what we believe? Why is everything else wrong and this is the right? To build that confidence into our kids, because if the right mentality is there in our children, then you will find they'll be able to deal with all the fitna in an easier way. It's still going to be tempting, but not as tempting as if they're not, if they're not convinced of Islam. They have to be convinced, genuinely convinced of Islam. Genuinely convinced. Our iman cannot be inherited. It cannot be borrowed. It cannot be social. Like everybody else is Muslim, so I'm Muslim. It can't be like that. And because we haven't addressed that issue of building Islam into our kids at that age, convincing of Islam at that age, you know the problem with that has become? That our children are like playing around with ideas of atheism and agnosticism at, in teenage years. I actually met a, the brother told me about a kid, who, a girl actually, who's gone through the, the, the Duxi system in Minneapolis. She's gone through the system and her parents found out, you know, on Twitter and on like Facebook, she's like, she loves this atheist lecturer and she's like listening to all of his talks and this and that, she's really impressed with him. And I'm like, and that's not a surprise. Because, you know, you can't just give Islamic knowledge and not build a foundation. The real foundation in Islam is, why are we Muslim? Why are we Muslim? And that has to be built. A lot of times the parents aren't equipped in building that. I'm hoping to develop some of that for children, inshallah ta'ala. That's one of my concerns is, because I want to do that for my kids, but if I'm going to do it for my kids, then I might as well try to do it for other people's kids too. Why are we Muslim? Why is Islam superior to everything else? My goal for my kids, when they are, this is the last thing I'll say, my goal for my kids as teenagers is that they see Islam as far above and far better than everything else and anything else that contradicts Islam outside in society, they see that not, they not only do they, don't, they're not impressed by it, they feel that those things are pathetic and sad and inferior. And they're, they're like beneath them. Because they're too, Allah has honored them too much by Islam. Yeah, I know. Allah has honored them too much by Islam to be able to, for them to be impressed with that stuff. So I want my girls, even if they go to a public school, and they're, they're not going to go to a public school, but even if they did, even if they went to a public school and they see girls dressed the way they dress, they'd be like, I feel sorry for these girls, man. Allah has honored us with Islam and these girls have no respect for themselves. You know, I feel bad for them. They're not going to say, oh man, I wish you could dress like that. Everything's haram in Islam. That's not how they're thinking. If we can fix the thinking, the behavior will become easy. The issue is we keep focusing on the behavior, we don't focus on the thinking. We have to empower the thought of our children. Build that Islamic thought. And if we can do that, inshaAllah, we're gonna have a really awesome generation ahead of us. And again, last, just as a reminder, 11 to 12, that's the year to start building that thought. In my opinion, that's the time children become more inquisitive, they start asking why, they start saying, why are my non-Muslim kids, my non-Muslim friends, why are they gonna go to hell? I wonder which religion is right, because we all have a religion, it's kind of weird. Then these thoughts come in their heads, you know? That's gonna happen when you're living in a pluralistic society, it's gonna happen. 
might as well help them deal with those questions. We have to do that. We have to do that. And inshallah we will. And we'll do a great job of it. Alright, my time is up. Inshallah ta'ala. Zakumullah khairin all of you for listening. Sorry I took extra time. I know there's another speaker waiting, inshallah ta'ala. Thank you so much. Very much. Assalamu alaikum.